Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. The Michelin Le Mans Cup on RS1. On RS1. Part of the Radio Show Limited Network. Welcome everybody to this special review show of the 2020 Michelin Le Mans Cup, a championship we covered from start to finish, eventually after it got going rather delayed in July. But they did manage to squeeze in uh, five regular races and then the two extras at Le Mans as well on Friday and Saturday, as it turned out, in this year's running of the September meeting at Circuit de la Sarte. My name's Johnny Palmer. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Bruce Jones to be looking back on the fifth season of the Michelin Le Mans Cup. Doesn't time fly? And again, it was competed with uh, LMP3s and GT3 cars. Bruce, GT3s, a little slim on the ground, you could say. Ferraris, though, um, the, the majority uh, of the cars that were represented. And we had a classic battle between Kessel and uh, the AF Corsa crew, or Iron Lynx, as they were called for this season, and also uh, uh, new cars to be uh, conjured with in the LMP3s with brand new Duquesnes and the Ligiers. Yes, I think um, it really felt like a season. Well, first of all, it was remarkable that we, it was able to take uh, place at all. So I, I really just say congratulations to everybody uh, for getting it on the road because we all need our racing. Um, but it really felt like a season of progress in many ways, because I think it's the well, it's the way it's set up to be, Johnny. It's the fact that the idea is that drivers and teams come into a series a championship like the Michelin Le Mans Cup and some of them have their, their sights set on greater things. And of course, being on the same pro- race program as the European Le Mans series, it's a natural uh, feeder formula for that and I I always find it very interesting I hate it in any championship when things stand still I like to see teams and drivers progressing so it's it's great to see new teams entering at this level and I'm sure that the very best of them in time with the right personnel the right money of course will go on to other things as well but uh, the thing that actually really pleased me I've always got a big interest in in the GT category yes it's been on the ground but thank goodness we have the team that we very seldom call by its full name. I called it TFT Racing, Johnny. You know who I'm talking about, the Sobera Zurichse by TFT, because they bought not just brought a Porsche along, um, but raced it really, really well and uh, took the battle to the Ferraris. And it's great, even if that element of the championship is, is quite thin on the ground, to have you know competition between manufacturers. It always makes it more interesting. And there were a sprinkling of uh, extra entries along the way, including at the opening round, in fact, where there was an EDEC Sport Mercedes for Patrice Lafargue, amongst others. Um, let's just delve into, very briefly, the, the entry then that appeared at Paul Ricard. DKR Engineering proving to be, well, the dominant force ever since LMP3s were permitted to race in the Michelin Le Mans Cup. They've won every single time that category has been part of it. 17, 18 and 2019. Jean Gloria, uh, himself a returning champion um, with Laurence Hors, who are Belgian and German lineup for the number three car. But Nielsen Racing becoming more and more established. There's another team to look out for, not only 
in this championship, but also extending on into the European Le Mans series and perhaps other places as well. Colin Noble and Tony Wells returning for another season in the seven car, along with Garrett Grist and his American teammate, Rod Hodes. Racing experience, another team from Luxembourg to join DKR Engineering. United Autosports, an ever-present in all sorts of ACO rules racing and then again some some regulars returning like graf cool racing with a two car effort that would prove to be very strong through the year and motorsport 98 with eric de donka and dino lunardi and i've mentioned a couple of the teams already in the gt3s the swiss team uh, well french tft but to pz obera zurich say to give them their full title they're basically a porsche uh, dealership porsche zentrum Obera to give the uh, the fleshing out of the PZ initials. Uh, Iron Links with three entries, uh, regular season entries there. Kessel Racing likewise, and the the lone spirit of race car that dabbled actually only did uh, round four for Gunnar Jeanette and Rodrigo Sales. But uh, we're seeing quite a bit of crossover um, between this championship and the ELMS. Sometimes teams decide to take a step back from the bigger championship to uh, again get it to tune with the with the, the new LMP3 cars, which a couple of teams did this year. But there is definitely a, a, a well-organised um, ladder that the ACO and the FIA, to a certain extent, have put in place so that you can ascend from this championship, ultimately, I guess, to the World Endurance Championship and certainly to the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Yes, it, it's sensible, it's logical, but I hadn't really thought so much about... Um teams if they don't feel they've got all their ducks lined up uh, for a campaign that maybe they could slim it down drop down from the european le mans series race in this so i, I certainly wouldn't have um, thought that's an unusual thing to happen in 2020 when nobody knew if racing was going to happen at all or if sponsors would come up with the goods because obviously it really was a, a year where many plates were being spun on on tall poles and you had to keep them all all zinging around but um I, what I like is, I'll just go to United Autosports, if I may, Johnny. I, I just love the fact that you've got um, drivers coming across like uh, Daniel Schneider. He's already signed up for 2021 with his teammate, Andy Merrick, and John Shaman sharing with Wayne Boyd. I mean, what a start having your car, Wayne Boyd. They just say, off you go, lad, or another pole, please, Wayne, don't they? <laughs> he just delivers time after time. But it's great to see really how the gentlemen, the am in the pro-am drive at these program driver lineups really some of them have made really great progress through the season that's the whole point of having these these lineups isn't it johnny yeah and yeah you can utilize pros in in all sorts of different ways yes they're thrown out for, for qualifying for the for the main part but the special thing about this championship is that qualifying is exclusively reserved for the lesser experienced and generally slower driver but in order for them to gain uh, crucial experience on some very technical and, and I think all now grade one tracks apart from Le Mans itself but otherwise they will be grade one because there are also um, stops on the Formula One Grand Prix calendar um, so that is a, in itself a unique selling point for this championship if you want to put some more responsibility on a uh, on a, a gentleman driver a, a woman driver um, then throw them in for the Michelin Le Mans Cup because you're guaranteed track time and let's face it, uh, that, that is the aim of the game if drivers are trying to develop their craft. But one thing that really stood out for me uh, through this championship, Johnny, was, of course, DKR Engineering landed with their feet four square on the ground and kicked off by winning that opening race back in the middle of July. 
um, at Paul Ricard. So you thought, oh, same old, same old. But of course, it was a, a revised driver lineup with uh, last year Lawrence Hall shared with Francois Kerman. Then he had Jean Gloria back for this year. But it wasn't just that easy for them. And I, what, what really encouraged me was the fact that a lot of other teams really um, started to s- step up. And in fact, Cool Racing could have won that opening round. I had to scroll back through my mind and remember why. DKR weren't right at the front. Who was at the front? And I then suddenly remembered Ben Barnicote. And then he got a puncture with, what, a handful of minutes left. So Cool Racing didn't start their year with a win. But Cool Racing, you know, when you're at um, the European Le Mans Series events, watching the Michelin Le Mans Cup, Cool Racing also have cars running in the, in the Ligier Series as well. So they're very, very busy. And it's great to see teams, you know, sort of spreading their talents wide. But also it makes the teams far more commercially viable if you can turn up at a meeting and have cars in each of the main races, you know, the top three races and uh, normally, you know, two races for the Ligier series, you know, and uh, so it's really good to see cool racing expanding all the time. Of course, Nicolo Lapierre, you know, you can't get more experience in the P2 class, but his overview with that team, I think is, is something that's very encouraging um, for people that want to come and join that crew. I mean, his, his experience is invaluable. And the way he offers it, he's a very personable person. Um, I'm, I'm sure he's really tip top. Well, let's delve into that opening round. And actually, a, a headline which broke before we got racing, which was brand new cars, brilliant. Duquesne M30 D08 from the, t- the uh, company that was formerly known as Norma, but were bought out by Gilles Duquesne in the intervening period, 2019 into 2020. So that's now labelled a Duquesne and a Ligier JS P320. So brand new cars for this season. Also a brand new engine. So we move from the 5-litre Nissan to the 5.6-litre Nissan uh, machine, although prepared. This is The, the engine is uh, built by Nissan initially, but then race prepared by Orica. And it's their responsibility to make sure that the engine does not consume too much fuel to enable it to get to the finish on one um, one injection of fuel at about the halfway point. Sadly, during free practice, that was discovered that, that wouldn't be the case and it would need a splash and therefore two pit stops in a two-hour race to guarantee to make the finish. And that was weaved into the regulations for the first round. It turned out that that would be the case for the whole of the year. Rather embarrassing for Orica and they were firmly told on several occasions by the ACO that they must sort this out. But it was obviously too big a problem to be solved within the calendar year. We look forward to how that develops in 2021 but two pit stops only one driver change you can make that though after just 50 minutes and plenty of of teams that decided to put their bronze out initially uh, pitted within seconds of that 50 minute uh, pit stop window opening Um, however I think there were one or two adjustments to engine maps that needed to take place you've spoken about the 69 cool racing car but ahead of that first race of the year you might remember bruce 37 was still doing the work on the engine map which left it stranded in the pit lane it couldn't get out to the grid and had to start from the pit lane and a lap down now nicola molini and edward cohope it would turn out would be very strong contenders through the year but that was a big non-score effectively for the uh, for the first round of the season or, or rather it, it was a Yes, um, they, they struggled to come back from that from, from that uh, difficulty. There would be more bad luck to come. We'll get to that in a second. But just speak about um, the issues at the start of the race. Well, but the, the thing about that, that, uh, okay, from a commentator's point of view, suddenly having this extra pit stop made life very complicated because it meant that um, 
you could have your 40 second pit stop which is fuel only or your 150 second minimum time which is driver change and tires etc cetera, etc cetera. but it gave them many many ways to sort of shuffle a race and it certainly kept us on our toes johnny constantly just checking that little thing in front of us 150 seconds for that 40 seconds for that and for the teams it was a a real case of experiment experimentation too to sort of work out how they were going to split split the course of the race um and so that sort of it cast a little bit of a cloud to start with but actually through the course of the season um I thought it became quite an interesting element. You just had to keep an eye on it and make sure you noted how long a pit stop was. Because if you thought they'd served a long one, they'd served the short one. Of course, that gave the race a very, very different complexion, Johnny. Yeah, but I did feel for Nicola Lapierre and for all at Cool Racing in that they'd had this extra bit of equipment that needed to be put on the car. Um, very last minute indeed. They got one car sorted, but the other one too delayed and therefore it started from the pit lane. And then there was what about 15 20 minutes into the race a spin for steve paro at the final oh. corner and this is a rinaldi racing car it, that wasn't his fault he got pushed into the spin however the rejoin was just disastrous and so poor on steve's part um just drove into the side of nicola molini so you start a lap down because you don't have the right bit of kit on your car and then you get t-boned by mr sparrow himself that was not a nice way to start the season no, it really wasn't. And I mean, it seemed a long time that Steve Parrow's car was sitting there sideways. And you thought, why did he suddenly just jerk across the track at the very moment poor Nicola was uh, coming through with his head down, trying to make up the ground that was lost? It, it was Keystone Cops. Um, mitigating circumstances, I had to really think quite hard to, to find any. There weren't really. Maybe it's simply that uh, for Rinaldi Racing and for Steve Parrow, they're stepping up from racing GTs over the years. Maybe it was a you know, the working environment didn't feel quite right, but it, it, it wasn't a good look. And you really had to feel for cool racing. And uh, for Nicola Morlini and uh, Edward Cowhup, you know, they were very, very quick throughout the championship. You know, and at the end of the year, they came away, well, listed as third overall. Um, but, you know, flashes, not flashes of speed, consistent speed. So if they stay to play next year, you've got to say they're the championship favourites. Oh, yes. And I would agree with that. They, they qualified really well, although couldn't take up their front row start. Uh, in the end, Daniel Kylevitz, I remember starting from third position, got a very good getaway. In fact, it was too good. And he jumped the start, even though he was leading into the first couple of corners, would have to come in and serve a drive through penalty. But it was the usual protagonists at about half distance. Certainly DKR Engineering were in the mix. Motorsport 98 there or thereabouts as well with new signing Dino Linardi. He did a couple of races towards the back end of last season as well. And somebody else to look out for throughout the year, Matthias Kaiser and Rory Pentanen of Graf. So Kaiser from Liechtenstein, Rory Pentanen from Finland. Again, they made their mark very early on in the season, managing to get third place at the end of the two hours. Yeah, they really did. And I, th I think... Um... I think there was so much to consider at the first round. A, you know, the delight that everyone was out there and we could go racing and people could stay in their, their sort of uh, team bubbles and so on and so forth. But there really had been a shuffling of the pack. And for Kaiser and Pentonen, they just were consistently good throughout the season. And for Graf Racing, you know, the, the, all the experience they've gained over the years, over the decades, seemed to be passed down very, very nicely through them. Could I go back, if I may, Johnny, just to call Racing's Edward Cowhub? When he was at that poor card round, this is the way things are changing. First, it happened in GT racing with drivers coming up at ever younger ages uh, and now into prototypes. Ed Cowhap is only, was only 17 years old. He turned 18 in the middle of August. And um, 
just astonishing maturity and it's a massive step up from racing a gt4 class car uh, to, to hop into a into a car with a lot more power totally different way of um, offering its behavior but mate miss that classic case if you're quick and you're young you probably just absorb it as you go but he was super impressive through the year not just in terms of lap time but he was also a very very good racer so i think he's got a huge future uh, lining up ahead of him no he, he certainly did impress and, and really from that opening round in gts the iron links car number eight established itself very early on as a championship contender with good opening stint from Reno Mastronardi kept out of trouble then handed over to Giacomo Piccini and uh, they in the end won by what 12 seconds from the 67 Kessel racing car of Paolo Roberti and Murad Sultanov but one or two others that would threaten through the year uh, didn't have great races in the opening encounter. In fact, the Porsche that we've spoken about from TFT, not classified by the end, only completed nine laps. And Michel Bronizhevsky and David Perel also non-finishes as well. So really, that was a great opportunity for the eight Ferrari that would prove to have a great season to have a head start on the other cars it, it would subsequently challenge. To be honest, of all the pairings that didn't really need a head start in terms of their speed, ability, uh, an experience was that number eight Iron Links crew because uh, Rina Mastronardi, I don't know how many times he's been around the racing block, but it's an awful lot. And Giacomo Piccini, you know exactly how fast he is. And they're both really tough racers too. So you can imagine the shoulders starting to droop as teams assemble back after the race. Thinking, oh no, we've already let them uh, take the lead. But uh, for David Perel and Michel Bronicheski, it was a season-long campaign and um, it was always going to be tough. But uh, really, you know, the likely winners with the, with the people that took that win yeah so on to spa we went and this was a, an event hastily arranged to be a week before the world endurance championship visit to belgium as well um great performance from nicola molini in qualifying to take pole position from moritz krantz who was regularly actually at the start of the, the front end of the field uh, when it came to qualifying with fellow bronzes and then sadly the 21 mulner motorsport car would often fade although it did have a good race at Monza I remember and we'll talk about that in a second Nicola Mella qualified the 11 racing experience car into third ahead of Jean Gloria who uh, was leading the championship by this point so uh, didn't manage to uh, get the extra point for pole position that went instead to number 37 cool racing so they were starting to get their championship back on track now uh, Spa again was uh, an interesting race held I think entirely in the dry and Molini and Edward Cohope kind of showed what they might have been capable of a few weeks ago at Paul Ricard with a, a win, a dominant one at that by nearly 25 seconds. I know you weren't covering that race live, but uh, you followed the results. And um, yeah, that, that made a, a sort of a, a stamp to everybody else that they would be able to certainly match the number three car through the year. And in this case, beat it by just under half a minute. Yeah, but I also I recall on that, Johnny, that they had a problem. The, the Molini car had a problem in its pit stop and squandered a, you know, a good chunk of seconds. I think 20 odd seconds was listed in a report that I read afterwards. So the fact they got the pace to win despite that just, just shows how on it they were. And again, a young pairing performing on a track that we know takes quite a lot of learning in Spa-Francorchamps. So and for cool racing, you know, it started to be, you know how it really helps if you, start to string results together you then expect to take those top results next time out right across sport and it really does start to sort of almost 
um, teams start to think it's their right and they start to just boost their performance accordingly to take the, the results they're expecting. So I think for Cool Racing and Cowhop and Molini, you know, they really started to believe at that point. Uh, DKI would hang on for second position though. So 18 points scored for that and uh, best result of the season so far would get better for Tony Wells and Colin Noble for Nielsen Racing just ahead of John Sharman and Wayne Boyd who was often put out for qualifying in the, the ELMS but uh, not the case in the Michelin Le Mans Cup not permitted to as per the regulations one of the more comical moments of the season came even before the start of this race though when the GTs were released from the pit lane and uh, they were warming up their tires down at the Kemmel Strait Claudius Schiavone kind of minding his own business didn't spot Michel Bronizhevsky though looking to overtake the two made contact Schiavone off at high speed into the barrier which did huge damage to the Ferrari and put him out on the spot that was um, a moment that he was firmly ticked off for afterwards Yes, I was. I can't think where I was commentating that weekend, but just before I had to go on air, I was just quick flicking across to see the start of the race, and that was the that was on the screen the second it came to light, and I thought, oh my word, <laughs> it was extraordinary. It, it, you know, egg on face is one thing, but it was it was way more than that. But you know, you just have to learn from those occasions, but just they shouldn't be happening. But anyhow, I'm sure <laughs> things will have been learned, but it it was unfortunate. However, GT3 really did put on a show for the right reasons during the race. And uh, we were um, we were treated to a spectacular battle in the dying stages between Giacomo Pacini and David Perel. Pacini, I think, on rather more warm tyres than he'd expected. He'd been reeled in by the South African. And, well, to watch them duelling for the last probably five or six laps was absolutely brilliant. Perel got the inside line into La Source with I think about two laps to go, Pacini saw him coming, so deliberately went way out wide to the left. That enabled him to tuck inside and have the inside line then down the hill towards Eau Rouge. It didn't end well because Perel into the chicane on the, possibly the next lap went for a gap that wasn't really there. It was closed by Pacini and the eight car ended up spinning as a result. And Eduardo Freitas was forced into a, making a decision very quickly indeed it would eventually be a drive-through penalty for the number 74 car of David Perel, and uh, they'd run short of time in order to actually serve that in the race. So it uh, transposed into a 30-second penalty for the 74 car. Although it finished ahead of the eight on the road, it was put behind. But um, without the contact, that battle was just superb, one of the best of the year. I mean, it's battles like that that make motor racing for me, because... They're drivers that know those cars incredibly well. They've been racing the 488 for years, the pair of them. They know each other very well. They've been racing each other for years. On a track they know well. And fact is that Spa-Francorchamps does provide overtaking opportunities. And that, as you just outlined, if you, if you go in tight, you've got to take a wide exit and vice versa. And, and that's what it's all about, having the space to go out and play, uh, you know, show their skills. Sometimes, you know, a little blow does spoil it all. But yeah tip-top and um, it was a, a cracking cracking finish to the race so that would mean Reno Mastronardi and Giacomo Pacini extended their lead in the championship after a couple of rounds and likewise for Laurence Hoare and Jean Gloria although they were outscored by 7.8 points in fact when you include the pole position by Molini and Cohope but still led and on to well originally what was planned 
to be a visit to northeastern Spain and Barcelona, but because of the state of the coronavirus at the point we were due to be going, that had to be rearranged. So it was a, a visit back again to Le Castellet in the south of France on the 29th of August for a two-hour race, this time build the Le Castellet 120, where the Le Mans Cup cars and the European Le Mans Series cars would be racing on the same day, ELMS into the night. And the race started in the dry from memory, Bruce, but got very greasy early on and actually ended up in a, a real old downpour, which posed many problems. Yeah, can't come to Paul Ricard, the south of France, at the end of, the, end of August. The weather will be absolutely fine. I mean, almost cast iron guarantee. But you know what? We were nice and dry inside, inside the TV truck. We were fine. But the conditions were really difficult. And I'm, I'm glad you pointed out it. It wasn't just damp early on. The track just seemed unbelievably greasy. And it really caught well, pretty much everybody out. Um, and, and the lap times were all over the place, I seem to recall. And every time you had drivers coming in to start their stint, the wise ones you know, decided they'd probably squander a few seconds and just have a little bit of caution to uh, assess the circuit. But in the dark, and it's very dark at parts of Paul Ricard, and, and, you know, with that wide track or the wide area on either side with the painted stripes, it's still terribly difficult to find a marking a marker point and uh, get your bearings and um, remember where the puddles were. Not that they're really puddles on a modern circuit like Paul Ricard, but some areas just held more water than others. And I, 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 I lost count of how many drivers did go for a little sideways snap moment or a spin but you know it's all part of racing johnny it's certainly the case i'm actually looking at the result for that race and amazed that we only had two non-finishers so yes spins galore but generally everyone got to the finish it was a 24 car entry two cars didn't make it to the end the motorsport 98 ligier of eric de donker and dino Lunardi, and the number 11 racing experience duquesne of david hauser and yuri wagner um Story coming out of qualifying, though, was that the championship leaders in GT3, Reno Mastronardi and Nicholas Nielsen, so joined by the Dane for this event, uh, Reno didn't get any times. He had every single lap, eight of them, removed after they were discovered after uh, after the session. The officials realised that the rear diffuser height was non-compliant with the homologation of the car. So he'd have to start from the back of the grid. GT3 was only a six-car entry, though, so that didn't have a huge impact on uh, where it would finish. In the end, it couldn't get ahead, though, of David Perel. So that was good driving initially from Michel Bronizewski, the Polish driver, to hand over to his South African teammate. And finally, a win for Kessel and the 74 car to, uh, to finish ahead of car number eight. One thing I just remembered, though, was um, the charge to the end when we ended up with a 1-2 for Cool Racing, Maurice Smith and Matt Bell. It was, it was quite a result for Smith and Bell because Bell hunted down Cowhub. Of course, he's got much more experience, but I just remember he, he really, really put the pressure on him. And you can imagine the team thinking, oh, my God, both our cars right next to each other. This is, is just going to be terribly messy. But uh, Matt Bell, great move up at that. Oh, easy, easy corner scene. Everybody passes there, don't they, Johnny? <laughs> but it was a good move. And again, on, on a wet circuit. So... Bruce is being very kind because he hasn't spotted or probably has spotted and decided not to say anything. My mistake about actually because of I the have. advantage of the Porsche, the GT3 car that had two LMP3s between it. That was the car that took victory. And that was all because of Julian Andlauer's brilliance in the wet. I'm amazed I'd forgotten that. But Andlauer took the Porsche over of the PZ Obera Zurich, say, by TFT team and Nicky Leutwiler kept it neat and tidy again in those tricky, greasy conditions. And Julian Andlauer 
standout, although I've completely forgotten it. But he was, wasn't he? So impressive, the Frenchman. Yes, I was just suddenly looking through my results thinking, have I, have I got it wrong? Anyhow, I was keeping quiet. But Julian Adler, through the course of the season, I mean, he's been a Porsche-backed driver for a handful of years now, but he, he was... He was one of the people that really stood out for me through the course of the season. And uh, you can certainly imagine Nicky Leutwiller, the Swiss racer, who just loves his racing and races as much as he possibly can. Since he's brought him on board, he's got more reason to have, uh, have a smile on his face at the end of any event. And Lauber is just superb young driver. So, yeah, that car had started from second position, having been out-qualified by Bronjewski, uh in the bronze-only session. It was the 74 second, in fact, and the eight car made the podium, but did lose a little bit of ground then on those cars. It will be battling. Uh, but yes, um, real brilliant. So, uh, similar, actually, for Newcastle-born uh, Matt Bell and his American teammate, Maurice Smith. So by this point in the season, Cool Racing had shown that not only the 37 car would be quick, but also the 69 as well. And very often they would find each other in the races, too. So um, they sadly, didn't uh, weren't allowed to keep a one-two that I'm remembering later on in the year, although they did finish there. So at times, Cool Racing proved themselves to be very dominant in in the LMP3 class. It was also a good result for Graf and Matthias Kaiser and Rory Pentinen finishing in second place. 37 would have been up there, Bruce, but that was also given a post-race penalty of a minute and 10 seconds. So put it down to, to fifth place. Yeah, and I, th- I think the, the Graf entry is worth pointing out. We mentioned at the start of... Um the programme that Kaiser and Pentonen were super quick. I said they were super consistent. But uh, in this particular race, I seem to recall the timing of a full course yellow period caught them out. You know, you were, are you at the right point on the circuit to, uh, to take advantage of a dive into the pits? And they weren't. So, you know, in the midst of time, these the sort of really strong runs get a little bit obscured. But again, it was just showing that they can be quick anywhere. So obviously they were thinking, right, hasn't happened for us at either of the Paul Ricard rounds. Next stop, oh, what's it called? Le Mans. Let's head to Le Mans. <laughs> Yes, and uh, the cars would be qualifying on the Friday of the main race weekend and qualifying, in fact, on the the same day as the race itself. You and I covered that. Um, I have to say I've had easier races to commentate on purely because of the lack of pictures that we had. But uh, you can always commentate from a timing screen, as exactly we did. And I thought you and I did a very good job, uh, frankly. Uh, We did have a very good view of the pit lane. Um, and those crucial stops that were made at, well, from the 22-minute marker onwards. No fueling needed because these races uh, were going to run to a maximum of 13 laps or 55 minutes, whichever we got to first, one on Friday and one on Saturday morning. The first qualifying session, though, was entirely free in terms of your driver choice. It's the only time in the year that teams can do this. So Wayne Boyd, Laurence Hoare, David Drew, Edward Cohope all put into their cars. And surprise, surprise, it was that Ulsterman who has that uh, uh, that tricky knack of taking pole so many times in the European Le Mans series. He did exactly the same. And by eight tenths of a second around Circuit de la Sarte, most impressive. No, absolutely was. I mean, it, it, was, it was great to see them have their chance. I really get about them not having it on a regular point of view, but you, you feel, you know, somewhere like the more, it's very much, it's a huge stage for them because yes, they might race in the European Le Mans series as well, take uh, Wayne Boyd, but this, the World Endurance Championship has its eyes out there as well. So for Boyd, it was, it was a, a great place to be. And then once he got into the start of the race, he pulled away from Nicola Molini um, relatively easily. And um, so he was really on very, very strong form for United Autosports at the start. Do you remember what happened next, Johnny? 
<laughs> well, do you know, I, I have actually been treated to a little bit of footage from the race as well, which was only released, well, five or six days after the race, which is no good for us. But um, I, I do remember that uh, it was a close battle initially between the first few cars. And I remember a lead change on the final lap. The bit in the middle is somewhat of a blur, but you might have better knowledge. No, what I was just remembering is that a team that um, was out there to play for the road to Le Mans, which is a uh, real team racing. And David Drew was starting to show really, really well for them. I just remember, but we had other new faces, Hugo de Wilde, a young Belgian racer, normally found in Formula Renault. And again, keep stirring the pot, bringing new names, put them in new places. Let's see how they go. I just thought it was exciting just to have a, a scattering, a smattering of different people in, in different combinations. And uh, I was really interested to see how well de Wilde went. Uh, Murad uh, Sultanov, I remember, had a, 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 an incident coming out of Arnage when the Edex Sport LMP3 went too far to the left, uh, caught the curb and spun right in front of Murad Sultanov. And he had little choice but to make contact not once but twice. I've seen that subsequently. It was a lead change, though, on the final lap. That was done out of Arnage as well for... Uh, Laurence Hoare battling with Edouard Coho. The car just seemed to be slightly more stable. Maybe they'd nursed their tyres a little better as well over the 50-odd minutes before it. But Hoare able to win the drag race out of Arnage towards Porsche curves and really timed it to perfection because as they crossed the finish line for the 13th time, DKR Engineering had another victory for the season. But a narrow one, just over half a second over Cool Racing and then the 69 Cool Racing car as well. So it was a good event for the Swiss team. It's just they missed out on on the biggest points. And of course, uh, looking down to the GT class, GT3 class, it was uh, an incomer. It was FFF Racing Team uh, that triumphed there. Hiroshi Hamaguchi, who's a you know regular businessman, but he likes to come and play and play very well indeed. And with Andrea Cordarelli, who swept all before him in the world of Lamborghinis in GT3 last year, you know, he had the top teammates and it was, it was interesting to see how he stacked up or how they stacked up against the best of the regular Michelin Mall Cup runners. And uh, the simple answer was they stacked up very nicely indeed. Thank you. They did. And yeah, uh, it would go on to be a, a perfect weekend for those guys. In fact, although they were not scoring championship points. So the next car on the road was the eight machine of Giacomo Pacini and Reno Mastronardi. They would take the maximum 15 points in the downscaled system used for the individual races of the road to Le Mans. Misha Bronoszewski and David Perel finished second ahead of another guest entry, a Ferrari from Sky Tempesta Racing, Chris Froggart and Jonathan Hui, but not scoring championship points. So the next championship point scorers were Iron Lynx and the 77 car. On to the Saturday morning race then, some, uh, an event that we had slightly more of an idea of what was going on. And again, we were treated to this battle between Cool Racing and DKR. Uh, Laurence Hoare left a little bit too much to do in his stint to catch Edward Cohope because the winning margin in the end for Cool Racing was 2.7 seconds. And I think it had pretty much been that since the silver drivers had taken over at the pit stop, Bruce. Yes, if I was given the choice of which of those two races I wanted the pictures for, uh, you know, now we know what we know. I'd rather had them for the first race. A little bit more happened. But again, you know, the quality rose to the top. And um, I I think everyone behaved very well. I seem to recall there were sort of fewer incidents, uh, fewer cars going for rotations. And for all of them, just competing on the full 
Circuit de la Sarthe is a very, very special place to be. Of course, you sometimes feel a little bit shoehorned in because you sort of aren't allowed to refuel in the pits. It's in, in the pits with your trolleys. Please wheel them out. Next next car's coming to play. But uh, again, everyone enjoys racing at the Mans, and I think they put on a really good show. Um, there was the uh, for, very forgettable moment for Nicky Leutwiler, who on a very greasy track lost his Porsche uh, on actually the release lap, which turned out to be the, the first lap of the race. Uh, and smashed into the uh, arm, the concrete barrier to drive us right. And sadly, that would be the Porsche out on the spot. And I, I think a brand new car, actually, from that point onward for Monza and for Portimao. I do remember a standout overtake for young Malta Jakobsen, who is now 17. He was only 16 at the time, around the outside of the first bit of the Ford chicane, though. I, you don't see that done very often. And an, another star, I think, to emerge from this year's championship, Malta Jakobsen. I was about to come on to him because, uh, yeah, just phenomenal. And he, you could really see the improvement. He was quick at the outset, but he just became smoother and smoother. But when you say you don't often see um, people overtaking there, you don't often see people even trying to overtake there at the Ford Chicane. But, uh, you know, full marks to the young young Dane. And I think he, he's uh, going to be very impressive indeed in 2021. But it's again, it's nice to see the old order being shaken up. You know, very much so. And um, I did think that we might be seeing the changing of the guard uh, when it, as far as uh, LMP3 was concerned. Not, didn't quite get there. More on that in a second. But on to Monza and another two-hour race. So back to the more regular race distance with the refueling halfway. And qualifying would again go the way of cool racing with Nicola Molini marginally faster than Moritz Krantz, who would bag himself another front row start by uh, two tenths of a second. He missed out to cool racing. DKR there or thereabouts in third and Rory Pentonen qualifying his graph car in fourth place ahead of racing experience. And then Morris Smith also for cool racing. More uh, laps deleted. Ah, this time for Nicky Leutwiler. And he, he was rather vocal in his unhappiness uh, about that. He was done for speeding in the pit lane. And when he breached the regulations, um, all the times prior to the speeding moment have to be deleted. The sad thing for him was that he was speeding at the end of the session. So all the laps he'd set prior to that were immediately taken away and he would have to start the race from the back of the grid. And uh, yes, uh, made his dislike for that rule um, rather obvious in the post-session conference. However, it would be a better race for the number two car because uh, Nicky Leutwiller and Julian Anla would get a second victory of the season. Um, still, it would be difficult to kind of force a smile out of the Swiss. And um, one or two people were discussing at Monza afterwards um, quite what the issue was when you come away from it with a, with a race victory and a, a dominant one as well. But, you know, some people want to make it obvious that, that rules need changing. I think that is a rule that is that is present in a lot of other championships as well, though. If you breach a regulation, then uh, all the times prior to it are taken away and you still do have the chance the other side to um, to set a legitimate time. The problem for him was that the, the clock was already at zero. But again, a standout drive from Julian Anlauer and he would manage to uh, stave off uh, Nicolo Schiero who were in the number nine Iron Lynx car. Now, that was the car previously driven by Michelle Gatting and Deborah Meyer. They're not no longer part of the championship by the point that we reach Monza. But um, the two drivers into the number nine, um, making their presence felt very early on with the second place. 
Yeah, they did. I was in, I was I was impressed with that um, because you sometimes think drivers are going to take a race or two just to sort of feel their way in. But um, for for Shiro and Emanuele Tabaki, they just hit the ground running. Of course, they know Monza very well indeed. That gave them a bit of a helping hand. But they, they kept out of trouble, kept it clean, kept it tidy and picked up, you know, points that would only be useful if they go for the championship. They were just there for the experience, really. You don't just come into a championship in what is effectively the uh, fourth of the point scoring rounds. So, but yeah, no, really good job. But also, I just want to go back to the Lloyd-Biller and Lauer thing. Of course, they, not a, you know, it wasn't just that they won the class that time around. It's, it's, they did it, art dis- including that penalty. So starting right at the back of the grid. In fairness, with only normally around uh, half a dozen cars in the GT3 class. It wasn't a, an enormous uh, demerit, but it just meant the early laps race, they had to be careful, but they had to try and pick off all of their rivals, which they did. So it was a good drive for them. Yeah, and plenty of overtaking for Andlauer to do uh, on his route to the chequered flag. Puccini and Mastronardi, championship leaders going into Monza, they would bag another podium and with that would seal the title, in fact. That was their dominance throughout the course of the opening uh, what six races that they would seal the title not only for Iron Links as a team but also for Reno Mastronardi as a solo driver. There was no Giacomo Puccini as we detailed uh, at the second visit to Lucastelet. Nicholas Nielsen stepping in for Puccini. In fact, both Puccini brothers out because of health reasons uh, for the Lucastelet 120. So it would mean that only Reno would be the title winner. But uh, brilliant for him to do that in his opening year and great for Ryan Lynx as well, because with that comes an automatic entry to the 24 hours of Le Mans for 2021. Yes, you can focus solely on the championship and the title. It comes with very nice prizes and uh, that is an enormous element of why a lot of the teams uh, come out to play. Not just have fun, but to see if they can elevate themselves to go and compete in the following years. Le Mans 24 hours. So, you know, well done to Iron Links and to AF Corsa that uh, ran the cars for them. But the race itself up at the front end, Johnny, I just remember this was another one I had to watch um, retrospectively because I was working somewhere else. It seemed to be safety cars, a lot of them through the course of the race. It seemed a fairly messy race. A few drivers sort of getting it wrong at uh, the Ascari chicane, if I recall on quite a few occasions. and um, But again, it's all part of the parcel. You have to be able to understand how to keep your drivers uh, doing the right things behind safety cars and hope you're in the right place when any of those periods are triggered. But uh, again, something you need to learn in the modern modern world of racing. You are right, though, because Tony Wells had a spin coming out of Ascari and uh, just edged the back of the car into the barrier, which made the rear wing rather skew whiff. But the far bigger accident involved three or four cars, I think it was, for the EDEC sport machine, which hit the crash barrier very hard indeed. One of its wheels came off and um, two other following cars had little option but to collide with that loose wheel so yeah nasty accident forcing yet another safety car and it was one of those ones if you were to win it that you just needed to survive the first three quarters really and make sure you were in the shake-up dkr engineering certainly scored well and that would mean that they'd only require a point in the final race at portimao to seal yet another championship now they were racing with a 37 car and the 37 car could still uh get ahead because I think that they were trailing by 25 points. So if they could get pole in Portimao and then get the race win, hope that the DKR engineering car didn't finish, uh, they would take the title. It was a long shot, 
But certainly Nicola Molini and Edward Cohope um, showed that they were up for it because they went and got themselves another pole position. And this time by six tenths of a second and not by not from the number three car either, because the other news that would break just uh, the day before the race would be that Jean Gloria, for family reasons, couldn't travel to Portimao. Uh, that would mean he therefore couldn't be the title winner with Laurence Hoare and Wolfgang Triller was brought in as his replacement. Wolfgang, not as good a qualifier, generally speaking, as Jean Gloria, only 12th place for DKR. And that would leave the door well and truly open for Molini, uh, along with his teammate Cohope, to take pole. From Pentonen for Graf, Moritz Krantz just missing out on another front row start, but he would start third for Mulner Motorsport. Morris Smith, John Sharman and Alexander Matchell for Cool United Autosports and Rinaldi Racing, respectively. So GT3 battle uh, and championship already won, Bruce. We would focus entirely, therefore, on what was going to happen in LMP3 and whether Wolfgang Triller could survive that opening stint from very much the midfield. It was quite a big ask in, in so many ways, but not only is the Algarve International Circuit a, a really enjoyable circuit with all that gradient change for drivers to do laps on their own, laps in qualifying, but it is a place that supplies opportunities uh, for people to, to make a passing manoeuvre. Turn one, perhaps, but obviously in that infield uh, hairpin, which is uh, right behind the paddock, I'm trying to remember what corner number, six, I think it is, um, Downhill entry, lots of escape road up front ahead of you if you get it wrong. There were plenty of good scraps into there. And I, I think it just made it, if you weren't where you wanted to be, you did have scope to work your way forward. And I think for a long time, um, a lot of circuits have, have not provided sufficient overtaking possibilities uh, for, for modern racing cars. And I think uh, at Portimao, it, had, it was fun to drive on and it was good for passing. So I think through the course of the race, it meant that if you got it slightly wrong or ended up behind a car that come out in front of you that wasn't as quick, there was scope to to remedy that. And uh, certainly through through the course of the race, um, we had some really, really good scrapping. That was the thing that stood out for me almost as much as breakfast on the terrace each day. <laughs> November sunshine. And oh, sorry, I, I tell a fib. It was right at the end of October. It was the 31st of October. Um, no, so it was just a joy to be there. And again, just to, to reiterate, a joy that we managed to get to the end of the, the planned rescheduled season. And um, it looked so cool racing was just going to gallop off into the distance. Um, but then, of course, there were safety car periods. And one that really sticks in my mind is when Christoph Kresp spun and poor Andy Merrick, we had both United Autosports cars coming through almost nose to tail, and Andy was left with nowhere to go. And that was sort of halfway around the lap, just before they got to the big dipper. And, um, you know, it's, it's, when you see a driver get out of the car, it's good. But Andy, you look considerably shorter. He really had to limp to the side. It was a big old hit. Um, so that sort of stood out for me in the middle of the race, not for the right reasons, but it's just something that uh, you remember that sometimes you can be minding your own business, having a really good run, and then a car could be just over a blind brow, as it was in that case, and it could just suddenly drift into the bit of the track that you've decided you're going to be on when you're going past it. So uh, I really felt for United Autosports and Andy Merrick there. Yeah, no, he uh, he certainly looked winded uh, at best, and uh, thankfully the marshals were with him very quickly, but uh, just needed to give him the time to to recover, and and hopefully that hasn't meant um, any extra days 
recovering at home for Andy Merrick. But yeah, nasty accident to witness, certainly. The point I was about to make before I, I veered off to talk about Andy Merrick too much was the fact that, of course, in these incidents, you, you get times when the pit entry might be closed or times when it's suddenly advisable to go into the pit lane. And I really felt for Cowhart because he just passed pit entry when suddenly it was clear there was a safety car bearing it. And, and, and that just took the win, win out of their hands at that point because suddenly they'd been just driving superbly, Molini and then Cowhart, and then suddenly all hope was extinguished for them. That was really, really um, very unfortunate for them in that final round. It dropped them down to, I think, seventh at the time. And that's, you know, in a championship as competitive as the Michelin Le Mans Cup, you're not going to get past uh, six of the other top crews by the end of the race. Yeah. And that was all surrounding the second pit stop that each LMP3 car would have to make, wasn't it? Because of the fuel consumption issues, they just couldn't get to the pit lane because they were in the, entirely the wrong place on the track. And um, it, it meant that uh, one or two others were in the prime spot coming through turns 13 and 14 straight in the pit lane, could do their pit stop in the final 20 minutes as it must be done as per the regulations and that just put them in a far better position i'm talking about uh, graf who finished first on the road matthias kaiser and rory pentonen uh, tony wells colin noble and uh, moritz cranson and alex capadia but there would be more confusion to come bruce not least for you and i because overtaking under the safety car was then spotted by the number six but now the number 26 graf car of rory pentonen and even though they did take the chequered flag on the track post-race, they would be put back to seventh position. And that would inherit, that would uh, rather promote um, Tony Wells and Colin Noble for a first win of the season. And I think about a first win in, in a couple of years as well, the number seven car. I think you're probably right. I could go back through the records for Nielsen Racing for last year, but um, one of those unfortunate things. But uh, in the late stages of the race, um, uh, Colin Noble had driven really, really well. And I suddenly thought, oh, I th he's closed up. I thought he could, you know, go for a passing maneuver. He backed off, but he already knew at that point. We didn't for a while. <laughs> Maybe I just missed the little screen that told us. But um, you sort of wanted to win it on the road, don't you? You could sort of sense that. But when your season's had a few ups and downs and you get a message like that, you just sit in second place and you, you just wait to be uh, promoted come the end. But, um, you know, again, in a season like this, ups and downs, and for, for Tony Wells and Colin Noble, you know, they deserve to win. So I'm, I'm really pleased they came away with one. Yes, looking back to the archives from 2017, the first ever race that uh, had LMP3s as part of it, Michelin Le Mans Cup, was won by Colin Noble and Tony Wells. That was uh, around Monza um, on the 13th of May 2017. That could well be the Middlesbrough's man's uh, uh, initial win, and this would be his second with Colin, although Colin's had uh, wins with Alistair McCaig subsequently. So that would put the the main championship rivals of DKR Engineering down to sixth place in the final classification. DKR really only needed to finish, and Wolfgang Triller did a tremendous job to keep the car in the reckoning. Laurence Hoare took it over, and although he was overtaken by Alex Capadia, that didn't really matter. I think it was better to, to let the Brit buy safer, no doubt, just to make sure that they sealed 15 points and the championship with it. And once again, therefore... DKR become winners in the LMP3 Championship, the only team to date to have done it. Of course, looking across the course of the Championship, it did look as though it was going to go the way of the uh, one of those two cool racing cars, the number um, 
sorry, 37 cars, yeah, 37 car Molini and Kohat. They didn't come away with that. They ended up third overall, but effectively, if Gloria had been there, they'd have been second overall because, of course, Gloria would have been sharing that title with Lawrence Thor. But, um, and for, for Kaiser and Pentonen, ended up the champ, um, one place down on Kohat and Molini. I, I think, you know, it really was a question of what could have been for them as well because they were consistently quick everywhere. We mentioned that unfortunate penalty um, at the final round. So I think it's great to have three crews that are really, really out there pushing. And if uh, Colin Noble and Tony Wells had a bit more luck, they would have been in that mix as well. So I think the championship, very, very competitive at the top. And I, though DKR Engineering came out on top again, I just think it was great. We've had other people really, really pushing them this year. And for the sake of completeness, there was a four-car GT3 entry in the final round of the year. And the number eight crew of Giacomo Puccini and Reno Mastronardi for Ryan Links capping their season-winning year, or title-winning season rather, with a uh, with a win again over Michel Bronizhevsky and David Perel. It was very tight indeed. And that was another story to come out of the race, Bruce. We always like to see battling out on track akin to what we'd seen at Spa earlier on in the year. But that was a bit too much for me with one car edged very much towards the pit lane exit. Yeah, David Perel was uh, pushed. Well, he had no choice. He had to keep moving to his right, uh, was fully in the pit lane exit. And I think that's uh, unbelievably dangerous. And frankly, I was astonished come the end of play not to have had something saying uh, driving standards penalty to... uh, to Puccini because I th- I, th- I, th- I don't mind a little bit of rough and tough but to me at full speed at top speed going down the start finish straight make a move but don't just keep coming across um, because at that point there was nowhere else that Perel could have gone so anyhow fortunately all was fine but that that to me was a sort of low point in the championship but anyhow they came through Puccini um, to, to take obviously second place in the championship after he missed that round early in the season and uh, Mastronardi a deserving winner in class but um Let's hope we don't have moments like that again. Indeed so. Um, But otherwise, very good memories, I think, from the whole of the season. Amazing that we were able to get uh, through it with only one race off the schedule. Of course, Silverstone uh, could not take place for, well, all of the championships, European Le Mans Series and the World Endurance Championship. Never was on the calendar for Michelin Le Mans Cup. So actually looking back, they got through all the races they had uh, billed at the start of the year. The move from Barcelona back to Le Castellet for round three, but otherwise the full complement. And that is credit to, to everybody involved, including all of those at uh, LMEN and uh, and the ACO. Um, we've mentioned one or two names that uh, might be the winner of this, but w- was there a particularly a, a standout driver, a slightly less obvious one that, that, that didn't get a title this year, Bruce? Well, we've talked quite a lot about Julian Andlauer, but He's not a newcomer. He's someone you expect to deliver at that level. For me, it was Edward Cowhart. Just turned 18 in August. Drove maturely. Drove quickly. A lot of those circuits, if he'd been there before, it was only in a GT4 car, which is a bit like, you know, turning up on a bicycle race when you've only previously been there on a pogo stick or something like that. Um, No, to me, he was the revelation of the year. And uh, with a a few sort of twists and turns, could easily have been... Uh, champion at the conclusion which would be astonishing for someone in his second season of car racing so he was my star how about yours 
Well, I was a big fan of Malta Jakobsen um, because one of the two of the overtakes he pulled off through the course of the year uh, were, were were impossible, I thought, before they took place. And it was only him actually being able to carry them out uh, and defy physics that uh, really did make me stand back and gasp for breath. And you think he's only 16, so there is so much more to come as well. Similar to Coho, really. Um, we're seeing these drivers in their very early years when often they may in the past have gone to single seaters with very much a, an eye to to get to formula 1 and you know that the junior single seater categories are becoming uh, more slim and and far between so what i like is this general pattern this fashion of of young teenagers realizing that two seater racing sports car racing could really give them a a 20 or 30 year career so it's fun to uncover them this early on sometimes straight out of karting and then get excited as to, to what they might go on to in the future. Uh, speaking of which, the calendar was released at uh, Monza, the penultimate round this year for season 2021. And as we stand, all being well, we will visit Barcelona on the 17th of April before the two races at Circuit de la Sarte on the 11th and 12th of June, and then trips to Monza, Paul Ricard, Spa-Francorchamps and uh, Portimao, to end the season. So that means that championship, this championship does not go to Red Bull ring as the European Le Mans series is planning to do in the, uh, the new year. But that on the face of things looks to be uh, a pattern that uh, is doing very well. So, so don't break it in effect, keep it as, as similar as you can, Bruce. And we've still got the, the, the keystone event, which is the road to Le Mans. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's, it's uh, very, very encouraging. I also think that for 2021, providing you know, all, all the sort of um, inoculations can give us all tickets to travel. We will see more cars in the championship. I, I think the fact that they had a really good grid of cars in 2020 will be remembered in, in time to come, uh, making the best of a, a very, very difficult circumstance, uh, set of circumstances. And I can only see this championship, Greg. And, and again, we've just touched on two really young hot shots. They in turn will have to look over their shoulders because more and more people are going to be coming to do their early part of their career, getting into GTs, but I think almost more so into prototypes. I think it lends their, their young abilities, I think, lend themselves very, very well indeed uh, to driving these prototypes and driving them quickly. So uh, more, more of those, please, because I think it keeps everybody else on their toes. And that's never a bad thing. He's Bruce Jones. I'm Johnny Palmer. Thank you for uh, keeping us company over the last hour or so as we reflected on the 2020 Michelin Le Mans Cup. Very much looking forward to next year. And also, this is the first of a few reviews that we'll be doing looking back on ACO rules racing over the last what 14 months in the case of the World Endurance Championship. And we'll also be doing one for the European Le Mans series as well. So stay tuned to the RSL schedule for those upcoming shows. And we'll speak to you very soon. Bye for now. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.